sports science, strength conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Hey everybody, I want to remind you of one thing. Rather than trying to spam you with advertisements to technology companies trying to sell their latest gizmo or gadget, I have a monthly newsletter that is chocked full of research articles, interesting tools, tactics, techniques, things I'm finding interesting on the World Wide Web. Check it out by going to adamringler.com forward slash newsletter. Pop in your email and I promise you I will never spam you or try to sell you something in that newsletter. I think you're going to find it really fascinating and interesting. I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. So once again, check it out at adamringler.com forward slash newsletter. Hey, everybody. We have a great Decoding Excellence show today. Today, we get into the weeds talking about RPE scales. It might not be the craziest, most technologically savviest conversation about the latest sort of performance enhancing technologies out there, but it is a very reliable and dependable and easy, simple tool that you can utilize tomorrow. Right away, you can literally grab a clipboard, pencil, paper, and begin to implement this strategy right away. We talk about ACWRs, exponentially weighted moving averages, standard deviations, and statistical relevancy across these domains. Check it out. I think you'll get a lot of value out of the show. Hey, everybody. This is Adam Ringler, and welcome to the Decoding Excellence show, the show where we get into the weeds of things, high performance, strength conditioning, sports science, and just the esoteric, the weird things, right, that happens within coaching. So on the show today, I thought, like the intro talked about, I thought we would talk a little bit about session RPE, how we collect it, what we do with it how we look at it and use that information to drive actionable changes, and maybe just generally some best practices across uh, the utilization of RPE within team sport. So without further ado, let's get into the weeds of this. So what is rate of perceived exertion, RPE scales? How do we use it? What do we do? So every single training session that one of our athletes do here at University of Colorado, but this is also widely uh, adopted and utilized across other sports. Uh, It's not, you know, uh, it's not specific to just one sport here. Uh, This is a modality that can be used across all of our athletes, right? But every single training session we do, we record the duration of the training session, right? And we also ask the athletes with within their subjective lens, uh, how exerting was that session on his uh, one through 10 scale, one being the least and 10 being the most absolute grueling of a session. And we have verbiage and we have labels to um, to go through this one through 10 scale. They also have the option that if they didn't participate in that session, that they could uh, click a button and it would ultimately say, hey, I didn't participate in this session, zero on uh, on this. And then obviously we wouldn't get any sort of training impulse or any sort of um, uh, training load uh, associated with their RPE times multiplied by the duration of the session. So this does a couple different things for us. Number one, it allows us to first capture attendance 
at a session, if they were fully participating in the training session, if they were partially modified, let's say they went through 45 minutes of a 60-minute session, uh, we would um, categorize that differently than a full session, right? We would say that they only did partial session, and then we would change the time duration associated with their participation. Um, perhaps you have some people that are doing a modified training program. So let's just say in the example that, you know, uh, we have a 60 minute training session. It is on the basketball court, volleyball court, uh, soccer pitch, whatever it may be, wherever their environment, uh, exists at. And there's three athletes or two athletes that might be injured and they're doing a modified training program. In that case, we would categorize their participation as modified, right? Because their sort of involvement within that training session would artificially skew the team average one way or another. So when they are labeled as modified, their uh, sort of training load, if you will, do not factor in to the group average within that training session, okay? So that's important to know. Also, just as an aside, if they are only doing a partial session, then that also does not factor in to the team average as well, right? And you could understand why that might be important. If 80% of your squad is doing a full full participation, full duration team session, then that is the most accurate representation of that practice or that training session, right? But if we modify it, right, through different modalities or different drills for whatever reason, whether it's a return to play or some type of medical limitation that they are um, restricting them from doing some type of uh, some type of drill, right? Then we wouldn't want to negatively downskew that training load across uh, the team involvement, right? So when you start to communicate these things to a head coach or across domains, across departments, you want to make sure that the data that you're presenting is is actually accurate and it's not an artificial uh, representation of too much training load or, or too little. So we ask our athletes this with uh, with every training session. So it could be in the weight room and we have different weight room sessions, whether it's speed, strength, um, regenerative, uh, if it's a power session, if it's more of hydro, uh, you know, hypertrophy type of session. We also have a number of different training sessions on our practice, whether it's a neutral site, if it's home, if it's away, if it's a walkthrough, um, if it's voluntary, if it's mandatory. And this is also very important because, yes, we can capture attendance. We can capture sort of some type of uh, arbitrary unit loading uh, across this RPE or session RPE, right, through the duration and through the exertion scale. But we can also start to categorize our training into different sort of types, right? We could look at a training week and said, wow, we did three sessions in the weight room and it contributed to this amount of load. We did seven sessions uh, through technical, tactical, um, and we were working on X, Y, or Z, and that contributed to this other type of load. And we can start to play with the relationship of different session types. We can also categorize you know, normalcy across different session types. So we can say, hey, we need to bump up our training load or we want to increase our training load this uh, on the 11th week of training. And we know we only want to increase it, let's just say 20%. Well, what what session types can contribute towards that 20%? It might be that we would need three gym sessions to be able to fill that gap, or we could do an additional 45-minute 
on court session or on pitch session, and that would also fill that training uh, training load void. So you can see why it would be important to start to categorize different sort of sessions so you can, sort of, again, get better understanding of what type of sessions contribute what amount of loads. So we do this. We're, we're fortunate enough here at University of Colorado to work with uh, Kitman Labs. Um, but you could, again, you could do this across different AMSs. You could do it on pencil and paper on a clipboard. You could do it on Google Drive. Yeah, there's probably some more um, more nuanced ways of doing it and some more uh, you know, in, intelligent and art, articulate ways of, of managing uh, all of this data coming into you. But again, you can use whatever modality, whatever means, methods that you might want to be able to capture this. It's very, it's very simplistic in some respects. Now, we could get into the formatic sort of uh, um, ways that we calculate different training loads, right? You could look at your typical acute chronic or, you know, ACWRs, acute chronic workload ratios. And you could run, you know, your typical seven and 28. So seven being on the seven, the last seven days, that's your acute load. You can look at your uh, 28 day sort of chronic load. Um, also, you know, obviously a, just another way of saying your uh, fitness fatigue, right? So more of a, a banister model. Uh, you could run smaller scales. So we have a number of different equations set up where we're looking at things like a three to 12 day load. We look at a, um, uh, I want to say for for 12, a four to 16. We look at a a five to 20. We look at a six and 24. And then then obviously the seven and 28. We also use, and, and we don't particularly pay too much attention to ACWRs just because as if you followed much of the literature over the last year or two, right, the the acute chronic workload ratio has sort of been um, debunked by a number of different professionals within our field, right? We do happen to look at sort of an, a more exponentially weighted moving average, so an EWMA expression of the ACWR workload ratio. So this takes into account that previous workloads in your chronic uh, duration, whether that's 28 days, whether that's 20 days, whether that's, you know, as we continue to go down 16, 12 days, that the, the further away the session type is, the less influence it has on sort of that chronic load. And, and why that's important is, as you would imagine, that loads 28 days are right on the cusp of falling out of that range, let's say the 27th or 28th day, right? That has a less of a contribution towards your fitness, right? Because fitness doesn't last forever, as you would know, right? You could go out and and build up this great amount of workload. And that would, you know, in the short term, it would contribute to your fatigue, but in the long term, it contributes towards your fitness, but it doesn't exist forever. It eventually falls off. And as the, the more acute, as the more near load has a greater, um, impact and influence on that sort of fitness that you have built. So we use ACWRs um, through the EWMA expression of that ACWR ratio. Now, so yes, we take it from, you know, we multiply time times the RPE that goes into our athlete management system. And then we can run those formulas off the top end of it. Now we do a number of different things. We look at workloads across the week, workloads across the day. So trying to identify athletes that are more tolerable to larger workloads and 
who needs top ups and who needs to um, just be sort of uh, who as a staff, we need to be cognizant of managing their workloads. We also look from week to week and day to day. So like where are workloads stacking up to the previous week's amount of work? Are we 20%, 10%, you know, 30% above or below, you know, so how many standard deviations are we above or below on a seven day mean or on a 14 day mean and starting to have a better understanding of our loading strategies so that we make our more intense and hard days hard and we allow our easier days to be less fatiguing. Um, and this is all in an attempt to, again, right, set us up for the most amount of success on game day, on the days where we are evaluated through competition. So we use RPEs quite a bit in our training status. Now, when we look at sort of the individual aspects of it, it's it's highly variable, right? One athlete might report the session was a three, which is rather on the low end. Another athlete might, you know, say or record that the session was a seven or a nine, right? And Obviously, we got to take into account that there are positional differences, right? So perhaps you are looking at positional um, averages across your group. So what is the averages for your forwards, uh, your you know guards, or whatever it might be across your different positions? Whether it's um, in American football or in soccer, or if it's you know what basketball, volleyball, whatever you name it, right? There will be different job requirements for each position that can contribute to greater or lower workloads across a given practice just because of the nature of what those bio demands are that their position uh, necessitates. It can be highly veritable from position to position, but in addition, it can be highly veritable from individual to individual, even within that position group. So this allows us to really individualize, you know, when you start to look at A, the training programs and the workload strategies that you might um, employ across your um, planning or your training schedule in a week or a given day. It also allows us, you know, you can, once the, the information comes to your system, you can start to look at things like standard deviations on individual. Um, so you can look, you know, perhaps if an athlete is uh, doing a session, right, or they're recording through the week, is that training load 1.5, two standard deviations, higher or lower than their norm across the day, right? And that can contribute uh, or at least provide you some information whether or not the session was you know, or intense or not, right? So of different ways that you can sort of statistically draw some um, information from the data as it comes into the system. But the most important thing is making sure that you get that information into whatever system. And I say system with air quotes, which really, you know, on a podcast does really poorly because this isn't a video and you can't see my uh, sort of fingers in the air quotes. But I say that because it can be as simple as, you know, pencil and paper on a clipboard. So now there are best practices when it goes to actually collecting it, right? The verbiage that you use to describe uh, the numeral sort of one through 10 can should obviously remain consistent. The method in which you collect that information should stay rel relatively consistent, right? So that, you know, color scales aren't flipped from one modality to another. Uh, the time duration from collection, from post-training to actual collection should also remain consistent. So, you know, it shouldn't be immediately right after a training session. I think most of the literature says somewhere between 10 to 20 minutes. Um, I want to say it's 10 uh, I would need to dive back into it, but 10 minutes post-training just to allow for 
you know, athletes to have a greater understanding of the collective loads and exertion across the practice and not necessarily the last most recent uh, drill that they participated in. Um, because again, you know, some teams will do conditioning towards the end of their, their practice. And you don't want that to arbitrarily be, uh, what the athletes are deriving the sort of collective duration of across the start the middle and the finish of the practice to be our, uh, sort of artificially skewed, uh, just because the last drill was intense or the last drill wasn't intense. So you want to obviously make sure that they are, um, you know, that there's some type of standardization across the way that you collect the information, the way that they are um, exposed to that information. Now, once you get that, it's ultimately up to you. Do you collect it and it just gathers dust? Or do you look at it? Do you analyze it? Do you uh, bring that information into a conversation with the athletes regarding their workloads, regarding support staff, right? So athletic trainers and nutritionalists and, and other people that support the program, are you bringing it to the attention of a head coach, which is also obviously important, right? Because let's be honest, you know, as, as sports performance coaches, we don't always uh, ever um, do practice planning when it comes to technical tactical. We'll we'll do the bio demands, right? So we'll look at the bio demands and we'll do the, phys- the physical programming for, you know, the bioenergetic uh, systems that, that contribute to their sport success. Yeah, sure. In weight room or additional... Uh, energy system development or conditioning. Cool. Awesome. We do that, right? But we're not planning that they're doing a, a 3v3 sort of uh, drill or any type of technical tactical sort of uh, execution. So we need to at least categorize our drills, categorize our practices, record, monitor, uh, and communicate our our sort of workload strategies and and try to do our very best to make sure that everybody is aligned and everybody is aware of where we're at as an organization, as our athletes are at, and then draw particular attention to athletes that might be, you know, doing too much too soon or, or not being pushed hard enough that might be leaving money on the table. Um, because obviously we want to maximize the development, not only from a physical domain, but we also want to maximize the, the development um, in a technical tactical sense, right? Because that's, you know, talent wins and, and skill execution and skill acquisition matters. So we want to make sure that athletes have the best likelihood of maximally deriving sports success through acquisition of information, um, through the execution of those tactical technical uh, abilities under the sort of constraints, if you will. It's probably a poor utilization of that word, but under the physical domains that they have developed, we want to make sure that they're doing those things, that they're maximizing their development and through every domain. And if athletes need to be pushed, then we, we we need to push them, right? But we also should identify that and we should have an understanding of when and where and how and when's the best timing across your sort of um, mesocycle or across your microcycle or across your training week. Should you be pushing athletes, you know, uh, game day minus one, um, that's that's ultimately up to you. I mean, particularly if that athlete needs additional loading, I would say that it's probably better, you know, minus three, minus two, um, and use your minus one as a sort of a, a taper into that game day. But again, that's, that's ultimately up to your sort of periodization strategy and model. Um, but we should at least start to formulate our own particular models when it comes to the deployment of different workloads and drills to elicit the workloads that we need. So this is a long-winded 
conversation, a one-way sort of monologue about utilization of session RPE, right? And but again, maybe you're wearing a GPS device, and this we're talking about player load, or we're talking about total distance, or we're talking about uh, you name it, right? Whatever it might be, high speed running, right? You could still use this sort of uh, EWMA or you know accumulation of workload. Uh, through whatever sort of metric that you derive your importance of. But we should be ultimately measuring, managing, uh, analyzing, communicating, and then acting upon that information in a meaningful way that actually uh, elicits some type of practice change. Because if we're not intervening positively or negatively, then ultimately we're just collecting information to collect it. And that's a poor utilization of these strategies, and particularly, it might be a poor utilization of your own time um, because you know it's wasting your own time as a practitioner, which we have a finite amount of, uh, uh, anyways, right? It's not it's not something that you know grows on trees that we can just go and, and go to the wishing well and scoop out more time. Like it's 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 not linear, right? It's not continuous. Like you, it will run out. Um, but also as far as an athlete's time and attention, we need to respect that as well. So we need to be making sure that our touch points with them are, are utilized in the best way, um, in a way that's, you know, supports the strategic sort of mission of the organization of the team, um, and ultimately delivers what they need, which might be information, which, which is awesome, right? Like some athletes might want to know more about what they're doing, but it also might be that, you know, they just want to be told what to do and when to push and when to hit the gas pedal and when to hit the brake. And we need to be cognizant of that through our conversations and interactions with our athletes and, and staff and organization. But we should have a handle on those things and fundamentally understand when, where to push um, back. And we, as an industry, have been historically um, or um, wrongly uh, as, uh, as as sports scientists, that we were always restrictive of workloads um, and workload monitoring or workload management did not play workload management. Um, really bad name that we're always restrictive, but we should try our very best to give the checkered flag, let it rip, all gas pedal, let's go as much as we can, when we can, when the information and the data suggests it, so that when it does come time for us to go to our stakeholders and say, hey, we need to be cognizant about pulling back a little bit that it's not always gloom and doom when we come to them. Hey, everybody, that is going to be it for this episode of the Decoding Excellence show. Hopefully you took some actionable information away from this uh, this episode, right? You can immediately begin to start to utilize session RPE across your athletes, right? And teams that you work with. It doesn't take a lot of resources to do. Yes, you can find technologies that uh, are expensive and that utilize a lot of cool and crazy technologies, but it doesn't have to be that way. You just have to begin. So hopefully you got the little nugget that you can start using Session RPE across your team sports. And as always, there's a number of different ways that you can support the show, right? The first thing is I have a monthly newsletter that goes out. It is located at adamringler.com forward slash newsletter. 
And like I said in the intro, it is chock full of great articles, research papers, um, sort of daily notes, things I'm finding fascinating and experimenting with and being a human guinea pig with to try to change my own behaviors, my own habits, but ultimately to really try to improve my life and get something a little bit more meaningful out of it. So uh, head over to adamringler.com forward slash newsletter, pop in your email, and I promise you, you'll get the welcome email and you'll start receiving those monthly updates and you won't regret it. I'm not going to send you a bunch of spam messages or anything like that. I really think that you'll get a lot out of it and, uh, and check it out. I get questions every single time we publish either an article or the latest update to the Decoding Excellence show. And the question I often receive is, how do I support this show? Well, we have a new way that the audience and the crowd and everybody else here can support the Decoding Excellence show. Head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. It's actually not buying me a coffee. I know the name sounds sort of uh, confusing or misleading, if you will. But what it is, is it's a, a platform, sort of a crowdsourcing way of, uh, of donating to the show. And the idea is that you would donate a coffee, right? $5, $4 or whatever to the Decoding Excellence show. And what we do with this is we turn the proceeds directly over to supporting the hosting of the Decoding Excellence show on whether it's on Spotify or on Simplecast or iTunes and elsewhere. And it, it supports the hosting fees for our website and the Decoding Excellence, uh, Decoding Excellence show. So if you want to support the show, you can buy me a coffee. You can buy seven coffees. You buy yourself a coffee. Otherwise, please head over, check it out. It is buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. I'll include it in the show notes. And as always, thank you for supporting the Decoding Excellence show.